to the garden You gotta watch your back Well, I beg your pardon Walk the straight and narrow track If you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul You gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole He's got the fire and the fury At his command Well, you don't have to worry If you hold on to Jesus' hand We'll all be safe from Satan When the thunder rolls We just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM here in Vancouver. My guest this week is Steve Bissett. Um, I've been kind of spending the last couple of weeks going through his work and trying to figure out where to introduce him from. Um, and there's so much. I Actually, this is the cartoonist who I've probably had the most to look at, and it's kind of overwhelming at this point, um, the, the amount of different work to read. The, I guess some of the main staples would be uh, the Taboo Anthology uh, that he published um, in the mid to late 80s, uh, Tyrant, of which four issues self-published, Spider-Baby Comics, as well um, the legendary Swamp Thing run, starting in issue 15 all the way to, or 16, 15 or 16? Uh, we started officially with number 16. Um, John... John and I actually were, were working with Tom Yates before we were officially on the book, but we can talk about that. All right. Um, and a plethora of other things, including a variety of books, uh, some ebooks that uh, are out right now, Monsters, Millennial Marvel Movies, uh, hero Horrors, Cult, Crime, and Creepers, as well as upcoming works on Brian Talbot, Alan Moore, um, the already published work, uh, Teen Angels and New Mutants on uh, the 1980s uh, Brat Pack and various other teen comic stuff. So that makes it sound bad. Not teen comic stuff, but 
Teen Everything. Teen Everything. Uh, as well as a book, you're a part of putting together a book on Neil Gaiman, and your very thorough My Rent blog, which is probably one of the most consistently uh, well-written and thoroughly written uh, author comics blogs out there. Um, you write a lot, Steve. <laughs> I write a lot. Um, I write every day. Um, I start every day with writing, and uh, and I really enjoy it. Um, I also enjoy drawing, but I I don't have all the baggage with uh, writing that I do with drawing. <laughs> Not as many demons to get out of the way before I can get get work done. How many do you like? How much a day would you say you get written? Is it primarily the blog, or do you kind of? Get oh no, I'm always post? juggling a number of book projects. I, you know, when I when I draw, Robin, I've got a, you know, when I when I when when I'm gonna spend a a, a couple hours or a full eight to ten hour day at the drawing board, I really have to shut the world out, and it's a whole mm -hmm. process, and it drives my wife crazy. Um, we have a secret code that if the radio is on or there's music playing, don't bug me. Um, but if, but with writing, I don't have to do that. If I have five minutes, I will use the five minutes. If I have, you know, four hours and that's my block of time for writing, I will use the four hours. I, I don't need to go through the mental and emotional gymnastics to, to get the work that I do when I'm drawing. And, um, and I write you know, every day. If I've got 20 minutes, it'll be a short blog post. If I've got a block of time, I'll work on one to two of my book projects um, and make sure I'm chipping away at the blog posts. And the longer blog posts are usually the result of, you know, something I've taken some notes on and then I flesh out the notes and, um, and it kind of, you know, grows into the blog post. And I really treat the blog as my, my warm-up exercise place. Um, uh, I don't always fact check or spell check as I should. Uh, it's a blog, <laughs> but um, but I do my best to to, to do that. Um, I'm glad that people speak up when I've made an error, um, and and I often do. But uh, uh, blogging for me is just sort of a way of um, you know doing push-ups in the morning uh, and and getting going with the writing. Um, and uh, I can't really you know give you an idea how much I do per day. I just make sure I write every day. And uh, I make sure I draw every week. Um, I, I'm not as persistent uh, a cartoonist or, or uh, drawer, as some people say, as, <laughs> as I used to be. Um, I still enjoy it. The writing comes really natural. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any self-made blocks when I'm, when I'm writing. It just comes. I wish I could do it all day, every day. When you uh, started posting online, did you find that increased your writing output having well um put it you know i there. always wrote but the problem was there were always gatekeepers you know who was i going to write for how was it going to be seen would it ever been be seen um i always wrote um going back to junior high and high school i i was i was lucky in um in my junior high and high school years to have um more than one teacher that really uh opened up doors for me in in art it was uh my art teacher, Bill Cathy, who I'm still friends with, um, Bill and his wife, Sandra. And in writing, it was Carol Collins, who I'm also still friends with. She was a creative writing teacher I had in, I think, eighth grade, uh, eighth or ninth grade. And um, I'd always written and drawn before that, but they were sort of the two adults in my world that, that uh, not just gave me permission, but sort of became um, uh, an audience for my writing, and and they weren't particularly sympathetic with my interests. You know, <laughs> one, you know, my obsession with horror and monsters was not really condoned by by any adult in my world. But um, I've been writing ever since. Blogging removed all the gatekeepers. Um, you know, my my beginning to work on the internet prior to blogging, I I had a, a discussion board called the Swamp that was at a larger board space called the Kingdom uh, that my old college friend Jack Vanuker had set up. Um, but that crashed a couple of times and it was really frustrating to lose all that content. And that was the point where I realized, oh, I better be, 
backing up and saving stuff. And and it wasn't until um, Rick Veach and Steve Connolly invited me to be part of uh, the online uh, Comic-Con space that um, I uh, really had a, a, a space I could pay, uh, post. But even there, Steve was the gatekeeper. You know, I could write the content. I could post it, but to get illustrations in, I had to send material to Steve Conley, and he would interject it. it that was in the late 90s. Um, and um, one of the big hurdles, I don't know what where you live, Robin, but one of the big hurdles was we didn't have high-speed Internet access. Uh, all we had was dial-up. So um, that became <laughs> an obstacle. Once we moved at the end of 2006 to get closer to both my wife's and my jobs, um, one of our uh, conditions of where we were going to settle was, can we get high-speed Internet? And that just opened the floodgates for me. I, there was no longer, I don't need permission to, to get something I've written out there. I, I don't need to, you know, try to convince um in the old days, you know, that Don and Maggie Thompson at the Comic Buyer's Guide were always open if I wanted to write something. Um, but they were the exception, not the rule. And the, and the one person in uh, the publishing world who really opened the doors for me was uh, my, my late friend Chaz Ballin. Uh, Chaz had a, a horror zine called Deep Red. And it was Chaz that, um, after I wrote a fan letter to him, invited me and encouraged me to contribute to Deep Red, and um, I really count Chaz as uh, a, an important person in that process of knocking down the gatekeepers, because Chaz was, was editing his own magazine and said, uh, you know, Steve, I'll look at anything you got and publish just about anything you send me, um, and that really opened it up. Um, the internet, though, you know, I write something at 8 a.m., it's up at 8 a.m., I I now write my blog well ahead of time and, and load it for downloading the three days a week that new content goes up Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And, you know, short of a power failure, that's my only gatekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like, earlier before we started the interview proper, you'd mentioned um, being really influenced by the undergrounds. And one thing one underground uh, cartoonist, um, he was doing uh, e-books... Um, Skip Williamson was doing is is doing does ebooks of his yeah. own, just of his life, and I was asking, is he looking for a publisher? And he's like, hell no, you know, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do with my stuff. Um, I'm putting it out there. This is me, you know, underground aesthetic. And I'm curious for yourself. Um, at one part, you did the self-publishing of comics, but you never self-published your writing until. More recently, I guess with doing ebooks. I haven't even really self-published my writing as yet. I mean, my my I started experimenting with print-on-demand books in, around 2001, and uh, I was working with a very good friend of mine, Jean-Marc Lafissier. Uh, Jean-Marc and his wife Randy are are very dear friends. Um, Jean-Marc had set up his own print-on-demand imprint called Black Coat Press, and at that time he was soliciting through Diamond. He no longer does. Um, so I started experimenting with print-on-demand, and as with anything, I, I just wish I'd done more of it. We ended up doing five volumes of Blur, where, which collected um, my... I used to do a weekly um, video review uh, column for a couple of New England newspapers. Um, and I collected those into five volumes of Blur. I did a, a book on Vermont films and filmmakers called Green Mountain Cinema. That was all done with Black Coat Press. Now I'm doing the e-books with an outfit called Crossroad Press. Um, one of my Center for Cartoon Studies um, students, who's now an alumnus and, and a very good friend, Tim Stout, has been a strong advocate for self-publishing via e-books. Um, the hurdle for me was and remains learning uh, the technical uh, framework to do that. Um, Tim was was uh, rightfully trying to convince me. Look, Steve, you don't need to go through an ebook publisher. Uh, you can do everything. But man, the variety of the variety of reading platforms is so daunting to me, and that they all require a different kind of code. I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in that stuff. I taught myself 
HTML code in the process of of blogging as much as I do, but I have I, I don't enjoy it. I really don't enjoy it. Um, so I checked around who was treating their writers fairly, and Crossroad Press got high marks from all my novelist friends, including Joe Citro, Chet Williamson, and so on. And I just decided to take the plunge. I see ebooks like zines now. Like I can put together an ebook, get it to Crossroad Press. Um, and they get it up pretty quickly, and I get to review the manuscript before it goes up, and uh, that's a nice, clean process. Um, if I weren't doing other work as a freelancer, and if I weren't teaching for a living, I could probably, uh, and I'm not bragging, I could probably get out of my backlog of written material, because I've been writing since the 80s for, for various zines and, and magazines, uh, I could probably do two ebooks a month pretty easily without breaking a sweat, but... Um, but I, whenever I launch one, it's a, it's an experiment because I also want to have results to bring into the classroom, Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the classes I teach at Center for Cartoon Studies is the all-important second semester of senior thesis. And I always want to bring the results into the classroom of a current uh, experiment I've run with either publishing or marketing or both. And um, so I, I've been timing my ebook. book uh, process so that I'm able to bring the results in uh, to share with each class each year. Um, so that that sort of determines what I do when I do it. And, and that's, all that, in, that's all invisible and will make no sense to you as a reader, but it doesn't have to. And, and part of that is the, uh, I don't know if it's still running where you're doing uh, Swamp Thing head sketches. Oh, that was, uh, yeah, uh, that was an experiment. Um, I... You know, I, we all presume that that young people, people in their teens and twenties, are are you know all somehow magically fluent with social media. That's just not the case. I mean, uh, every class every year is a mixed bag. Um, some students come in and they they can't live without their mother box in reach. <laughs> I still think Jack Kirby's mother box in the fourth world is one of the most prescient things I've seen in comic book science fiction. Well, everyone's got, they even ping now, you know, your Facebook message comes in and ping, you get the ping. So, um, and others just, you know, either because of where they lived or because of their personal disposition and, and the way they carry themselves in the world don't want to interface or can't interface with, with the social media. So, so I, I decided to do a test. I, I wanted all these things answer questions I have as well. I, I wanted to find out which social media platform is the most effective one for marketing and self-promotion. So I did an experiment at the end of December, beginning of January, where uh, I chose three platforms, um, Facebook, my blog, and Twitter. And what I did on each of them was the same test. For two and a half days, if you spent $50 or more at my online store on anything, you got a free Swamp Thing sketch. And I was curious to see, would the word spread, how would it spread, and how many orders would I get? And um, uh, and with true test marketing, I mean, I've worked in retail since I was six years old. My dad used to have a grocery store. I was a manager and, I mean, co-manager and a buyer at First Run Video, Southern Vermont's first video superstore from the mid-'90s to 2005. Uh, test markets, you don't announce you're going to test market. You just do it. Because if you announce it, you've already diffused your test market. <laughs> People are looking for it, and you're not going to get uh, actual results. So in each case, I just made the announcement. So on Facebook first, I posted for two and a half days, and I reposted on Facebook um, again and again during that two and a half days. Order 50 bucks or more, free swamping head sketch. And I got seven orders. And then on my blog, I waited a few days, and then on my blog passively posted uh, the same offer. I did not self-promote it because I would have broken my own rules if I'd gone on Facebook and steered people to it. But part of the experiment was who's going to see it on my blog and spread the word. And what happened is a couple of my regular blog readers saw it the morning it went up, posted about it on Facebook, but they only posted about it once because that's what people do in social media. You see something of interest and you mention it one time and then you move on. Uh, I got two orders off the blog. And then on Twitter, I did the same thing. I waited a few days, and then I posted on Twitter. 
and I turned off uh, the feed between Twitter and Facebook. I wanted to make sure that my tweets would not appear on my Facebook page um, during that experiment. And I got eight orders. So that in the, and I got eighty orders within the first eighteen hours, Robin. So that satisfied me that Twitter was going had already yielded the best results. But then, <laughs> about eighteen hours into it, uh, the announcement popped up on Bleeding, uh, not on Bleeding Cool. It was one of the other sites. Someone announced that Guillermo del Toro was scripting a film project that would co-star John Constantine in Swamp Thing. And that prompted Rich Johnston at Bleeding.Cool uh, to check my feed. He saw the announcement about the Swamp Thing sketch, and he sent me a tweet saying, gee, I should mention your offer, you know, in conjunction with the Del Toro. And I wrote back, sort of wise-ass, and said, well, you better do it quick. There's only 24 hours left. And he did. It did go on Bleeding.Cool, and I got over 50 orders within, you know, within 10 hours. Um now that distorted my results. <laughs> um, it also meant I'm still shipping out every day orders. Um, I'll be caught up by next week and everyone's order will be out. But um, I went into this with 25 Swamping Head sketches done. And these are full ink sketches with archival ink and done with brush and pen. So I had to do another almost 50 sketches and you know fit that in between the opening two weeks of teaching at CCS for the new semester and all that stuff. Um, but I'm not complaining. Uh, it was a very successful experiment. And just the eight orders I had already gotten on Twitter allowed me to bring in the results to my students and go, you know, here's what I advise. You know, hook up your tweet, your Twitter account so the feed also appears on Facebook and just tweet when you're trying to get the word out because it will appear in both media and uh, that's where you'll get your best results. Now, the caveat I always have to give my students, and they're well aware of this. I mean, I've got, I don't know how many years, 35-plus years of working in comics. I'm known for Swamp Thing. Um, by and large, of course, I'm going to get more attention than, than they would as starting out cartoonists. But, you know, that's not always true. Um, Joe Lambert, Joseph Lambert, who did the Helen Keller graphic novel that's been very deservedly getting a lot of accolades and attention, um, Joe was building a real web presence before he'd even graduated CCS because his work uh, hits a nerve and was very appealing. And um, and Joe is not an egotistical guy. I mean, he wasn't out there as a huckster really trying to promote himself. He was he had um, uh, a blog uh, site called Submarine Submarine, and he was posting his sketches, and um, and it was catching a lot of people's fancy. And, and I, I think I, you kind of got it right there too, though, is the fact that he wasn't a huckster. Because well, that's Joe's it. I mean, that, that's so that's the tough thing in this human. environment. I mean, yeah, you're right. He was just doing it for the pure love of it, and that's attractive, and and it's real, you know. Um, and that is one of the challenges of working with social media, because a lot of people go there to avoid hucksterism, but they're all on there to promote whatever it is they're looking to promote. Yeah. whether it's their worldview <laughs> or that everyone should have guns or, <laughs> you know, it's their artwork or their book or their music or their comic. So we, we've all gone into the social media with this sort of Janice um, attitude, this two-faced attitude um, that we're here because we're above that sort of thing. But, oh, my God, this is where I'm getting a lot of my information now. So I completely understand. It's a, It's a tough... Thing. Like I'm currently trying to unload something on whatever media I can, and it's it's hard to kind of find that balance between being gross and trying to get what you want. Well, Chuck there. Forsman, who's also a CCS alumnus, and and you know, told me something very interesting last year. Chuck had hit um, Chuck hit pay dirt with his first print. He did a print that was. Um, uh, Indiana Jones done as a as a uh, parody of a comic strip. The Peanuts one, wasn't it? Well, the Peanuts one, and and it hit the bell instantly. Um, but Chuck didn't. Chuck's not a huckster. He didn't go out there and hard sell it. He just um, put it up on his oily site that he was what became his oily site that it was available. And Tom Spurgeon and Heidi McDonald and the various comic sites saw it and announced it. 
and he sold out very quickly of his initial print run. And for a young cartoonist like Chuck, that's a real windfall. You know, it's like suddenly you can pay your bills that month. <laughs> so he tried to do it again, um, and what he quickly discovered was that um, the people who are writing for those various sites um, don't, as far as I can tell, the only press releases they pay attention to are the ones from, you know, Marvel, DC, IDW, you know, the the, the usual cast of characters. Um, and anything else they feel they have to discover themselves. And what that does is, is in one way, when, when, when it works, in the case of uh, Chuck Forsman and Oily Comics, it's wonderful to see it catch fire and, and pick up its own momentum and, and go from being a brush fire to a wildfire. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it also means it's almost impossible for a young cartoonist to try to get their attention um, or to try to break through there. I mean, I've mailed copies of my prints gratis to many of the so-called online journalists. Mm -hmm. They have never mentioned it, ever. <laughs> um <laughs> And at a certain point, you go, okay, uh, I'm pissing up a rope. I'm going to yeah. stop. You know, it's. It, I mean, I can speak from being, you know, quote unquote, online journalist. Um, although I'm pretty minimal in what I'll actually do, is I'll get a lot of emails from folks. Um, I don't get as much in the mail, partly because I'm in another country, so it costs more. Um, it just but, got more expensive too on Monday. Just so you know. I heard that's yeah. that's great. Uh, <laughs> Um, but the big thing is is for for anyone listening, if you want to get noticed, make the personal effort to know who you're contacting. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I know with you, you probably also know these people. You know, you know Heidi McDonald. You're sending something to that. They still ignore story. me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I I I, I won't. I, I don't want to sound like I'm bitching uh, because I'm not. I, I'm fine. Yeah. But it's how do I impart to the next generation of cartoonists, the people I'm lucky enough to have FaceTime with, because they're all asking, you know, how do I get my foot in the door? And and there is no there you know, there there are no rules right now. There is no formula. There is no template that you can repeat with one party that worked with the last one. All bets are off right now. Which in one way is an exciting, amazing uh period we're in, and in another way uh, for young creators who already are facing what seem like insurmountable obstacles every single day, it's another set of obstacles. And um, um, and and my interest is above all right now as an educator, Robin. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I mean, I pursue all this stuff because I want to. If I can't give them an answer, um, then I try to go out and find an answer by experience. Well, it's funny because so, they're like there is no answer because the approach you would take with me where I'd suggest people be persistent and harass me because I forget um, is the opposite where Tom Spurgeon on his site is very clear don't ask me if I got your book just well, send yeah, it. It, and it's also that you Tom, Heidi, any, Rich Johnson, anyone out there, you guys are sifting through a cacophony the same cacophony I can look at every morning online and what is you know, what is going to catch your fancy that day? You don't fucking know. <laughs> pardon my, pardon my using the F word. I'm but, in Canada. You know, you it's you okay. don't know, and yeah. and how can you tell me? And the same goes for those people. Um, uh, but it does make it tough. I mean, I'm not able to give the kind of answers that um, that we were given in the classroom when I was at the Cubert School. You know, at that time there was a way to do it, which was live close to New York, hit the pavement every week, arrange interviews as an artist, bring your portfolio up. It was just as daunting and, and difficult and terrifying in its way as anything the new, the new creators today are facing. But it was geographically finite, and you could do it. <laughs> you know, and if doors were slammed in your face, at least it was a physical door, and it was physically slammed in your face. Um, they don't, you know. You sometimes you just never know what the results are anymore, and then months later you find out, oh, somebody was paying attention to that. 
So. Do you think after reading uh, Sean Howe's uh, History of Marvel book, uh, you'd have had as much op- optimism in the 70s as after that? <laughs> I was living that that book. Um, you know, we were not optimistic in the 70s. Um, oh, I don't when... even necessarily mean, but, you know, would your optimism been lower? <laughs> uh, you know, you have to be optimistic when you're in your 20, yeah. 20s or you commit suicide. And, and a lot of people in their 20s do, unfortunately, commit suicide. Um, it wasn't optimism. It's tenacity. It's mm. determinism. It's, damn it, this is what I want to do. And, and if you're not going to be one of the... Uh, one of the venues for me or or I'm not of use to you, fine. Say no to me so I can look elsewhere, move elsewhere. We you know, we came into comics, Robin, at at a time that was that was horrible. Um comic shops hadn't really taken off yet. I mean I, I was I was going to job interviews uh, from nineteen seventy seven onward. And the D C implosion happened while we were at Cubert School. We had you know, instructors of ours show up in tears a couple of times because they had just been canned, or in one case, you know, husband of one of our instructors had just been canned at DC, and we were seeing the consequences in Joe's life. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe uh, eagerly was showing us um, the original art for an entire line of comics he was editing for DC, and it included. Uh, a comic called Savage World that Doug Wildey was writing and drawing, and it included a book called Panzer that Robert Kaniger was writing and Lee Elias was drawing, and it included Ragman, which Kaniger was writing and Joe was drawing. And uh, if you remember your comics history, you know, the DC implosion hit, and the only one of those that saw light of day as a comic was Ragman. Um, But we saw day-to-day the consequences uh, of the DC implosion because it was impacting Joe and it was impacting our instructors. The underground comic market imploded. I mean, I was buying Arcade, uh, the last great underground comic anthology of of the classic underground era, when I was going to, originally going to Kubert School, and it closed up shop while I was at Kubert School. We watched the the last death rows of the underground comics market. so we were trying to enter the field at a time when we were screwed, you know? Yeah. And that was what I was wondering about is, like, it, you were very influenced by the undergrounds, very knowledgeable about the undergrounds, and it's just, you kind of, you go there, you go to make comics, and it's just that direction just wasn't an option for you, I guess. Well, it still was an option in some ways. We were lucky enough to catch, I mean, I mentioned Arcade, you know, that was the last classic mm-hmm. underground. I, I would, I would you know, mark that as one of the high points and the tombstone of the classic American underground period. But, you know, Rick Veach showed up. I, I first met Rick Veach the first day I was at the Kubert School. Uh, that's where we met. And we were both from Vermont, but we never would have met if it weren't for Kubert School. Rick already had a connection with a fellow named Clifford Neal out of Mystic, Connecticut, who was publishing the underground Dr. Wortham's and Comics and Stories. And it was through Rick that I was able to submit a story to Cliff Neal. And there was a New Jersey um, underground comic publisher, uh, Larry Shell, who we also sold work to. And Larry was doing, let's see, I was in 50s Funnies and Alien Encounters were two of Larry's books that I did work for. Um, so we were catching the tail end. You know, I, I Cliff and Larry were sort of... Um, uh, the the uh, outlying fringes of of the underground at that time, but they were early employers. I mean, Tom Yates, Rick Veach, myself. You know, we were we felt lucky to be uh, published by those two people in their titles, and we did feel like, well, okay, at least this is um, underground comics work, even if they're not calling it underground comics work. Um, we were still writing and drawing what we wanted to write and draw, and they were accepting it if it fit their their uh, paradigm. So what were the options for you at that point when you were done Qbert school? Um, Joe, uh, Joe opened uh, three doors for me right from the start, and not for me alone. Um, if, if we had completed or were up to task on our student work, we could participate in the student work program that Joe offered, and that included 
doing uh, backup stories and battle albums for Sergeant Rock, which was the one comic Joe was editing at DC at that time. Um, and Joe was your editor. He was the taskmaster. He went over every step of the work you did. So it was a clear extension of the uh, the curriculum at the Kubert School while still being true professional work that was going to see print in a, in a mainstream comic. Um, I also had been invited by Joe to work up something brand new for a, a new publication he was doing called Sojourn. It only lasted two issues, but that was a real um, that was a real honor and, and, a, and a real feather in my cap that Joe invited me in. And Joe also had me do um, he had been approached by Scholastic Publications who comic readers most likely associate with the Scholastic editions of Jeff Smith's Bone now. I associated Scholastic with um, the junior high and high school magazines that Scholastic published um, when I was still in school. And Scholastic approached Joe. They were starting a new magazine called Weird Worlds. And remember, this is right in the wake of Star Wars. So all the publishers were scrambling to jump on the Star Wars uh, bandwagon. And this was Scholastic's science fiction monster magazine. So Joe had been approached by the editor, uh, Bob Stein, who is better known now as R.L. Stein, the creator of the Goosebumps book series. Bob and his wife Jane approached Joe and said, we're going to do a horror comic in every the horror comic story in every issue of Weird Worlds, and we'd, we'd like to have the Joe Kubert School do it. So Joe um, came to me. I was in my senior year at that point. It was a two-year program, and I got the gig to uh, pencil and ink the first of those stories. And Joe was really happy with the results, and I kept doing them. Uh, there was one of them I couldn't do. I was working on another job, and Joe and Tim Truman did one of the Weird World stories and covers, as I recall. And um, Joe gave me that job when I graduated. Uh, he said, um, you know, they're happy to keep working with the school, Steve, but why don't you take this commission? And my God, Robin, I mean, that was just an incredible gift. It meant I was graduating with a gig. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I kept working with um, Bob Stein, and the art director was Bob Feldgis, and they were wonderful people to work for, and best page rate in the industry, and the best printing in the industry. Um, now, while I was at the Kubert School, uh, before I graduated, on my own, um, I also managed to uh, get an interview with John Workman, and John was the art director at Heavy Metal, and I sold uh, two or three pieces to Heavy Metal, three pieces, I think, to Heavy Metal before I graduated, and that was on my own. That wasn't that was Joe fine. or Joe's connection. You know, that was from me going out and beating the pavement and, and dragging my portfolio and going through. And I just want to make a, a, a note that this is like prime era heavy metal. Well, this is first this year is, of heavy metal. Yeah. You know, heavy metal was launched. There was a special issue of National Lampoon. It had a, a roller coaster cover gag. And they had a special insert announcing heavy metal coming. And um, I was up there looking for work, um, I think within six weeks of the first issue of Heavy Metal coming out. Um, and I was familiar with it, Robin. I, when I came to Kubert School, uh, one of my, uh, before I went to Kubert School, I went to Johnson State College up in Johnson, Vermont. And that's where I met um, Jack Vanucker, who I mentioned earlier, and my friend Steve Perry, who later was writing for Marvel Comics. And um, Jack gifted me. Um, as a gift, uh, as I was moving away from the area to go to Kubert School, gifted me with a complete set that he had purchased from Bud Plant of Metal Herlant, oh, yeah. the original publication yeah. that the Humanoids Associates had published in France. You could buy that stuff through Bud Plant. And I had seen and read the issues um, in Jack's uh, apartment. Uh, it was part of his collection, and I loved them. And he gifted them to me. 
um, as we parted ways as I was going to, to the Kubert School. So I was well aware what heavy metal was once it hit. I mean, I knew that material by heart. I was just shocked at how bad the English translations were. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this was prime heavy metal time. But it was also a time when heavy metal wasn't looking for American cartoonists either. Mm-hmm. Um, but John Workman liked my work and was very accommodating. And I had also begun selling work to Rick Marshall. Rick Marshall was uh, an editor up at Marvel um, with their black and white line. I don't think I'd sold anything to Rick yet, but I had definitely gone up for my first um, job interview uh, with Rick Marshall, and his assistant editor was Ralph Macchio, who outlived every editor I worked with at at Marvel. Ralph is still up there, I believe. Um, So going back to your original question, my very long-winded answer, um, you know, when I read uh, Sean Howe's book, uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, I had lived that. And... What was amazing, I mean, I love Sean's book, and I I was blogging about it before um, the release date because I got my hands on an advanced reading copy. Sean's book is so good that it made sense of things that happened to me at Marvel that I had no way of knowing what the backdoor dealings were that had led to decisions that impacted me and Tom Yates and Rick Beach and friends of mine. Um, that is a good comics history book when it allows you as a professional to look back and go, oh, so that's what was going on. I get it, you know. It's a, it's a heartbreaking book. They're all heartbreaking books. Yeah. I, you know, every history that of, of any aspect of the American comics industry is a heartbreaking book. Um, but, but I think that's true of every aspect of American media. There are individual success stories that make for terrific biographies, but when you when you look at the histories of these companies, uh, yeah, I mean, media empires are built uh, and sustain themselves by, you know, masticating yeah. and then spitting out individual people. <laughs> That's we are krill. It's. Uh, I just got uh, sent the um, the El Cap biography by uh, Dennis Kitchen and one other person and it's just it's, it's so interesting just how different the comic syndicate is from the comic you know the funny books yeah just, and uh, you know we we got a crash course in this when we were students at the at the Kubert school we did not have a business course uh, there was not a specific uh, class at the Kubert school dealing with business um, but we were being groomed to be able to build a portfolio and go out and get work. It was very much a trade school. Um, and, and the Kubert School is still very much a trade school. And Center for Cartoon Studies is uh, a combination trade school, um, uh, art school in its way. But we got the lessons <laughs> firsthand from, from these people. And I mention it because one of our teachers, Lee Elias, had been an assistant to Al Cap at one point. So we heard a lot of Al Cap stories, and we saw firsthand the high regard with which um, a Joe Hubert, a Lee Elias, held the syndicates. For their generation, they never outgrew the perception of the comic strips and the comic strip creators as being the aristocracy and comic books were very much the plantations. Um, so we understood that. However, consciously or unconsciously, Robin, at the time, I don't know how well we we could have <laughs> articulated that. But we certainly got the message loud and clear within our first year that there there were classes within, uh, uh, as in as in tiers and and social classes within the profession, and that uh, for the generation of cartoonists who were teaching us. Um, the syndicates were the aristocracy. But we also, again, you know, we're, we're, this is happening to us, 1976 to, let's, uh, we graduated in 1978, and 1979 was our first year in the field. Um, as we got to know other professionals, Rick Veach and Tom Yates were, were really good friends of Al Williamson's. And um, through that, my friendship with Tom and Rick, I got to meet Al and got to, um, have some FaceTime with Al because Rick would be working with Al at Al's Pennsylvania studio on a given project. Rick 
worked on the uh, Empire Strikes Back adaptation that Al did for Marvel Comics, and then Rick later worked with Al on the Flash Gordon, Dino De Laurentiis movie adaptation that Whitman Golden Books did. Um, and I would get invited to come out and visit Al. Al liked me. He thought I was a funny character. Um, but I bring that up because one of those visits, I got to look at Al's originals for the Star Wars uh, comic strip, which no newspapers were carrying around here. I, I didn't see them uh, until that trip. And Al brought out all the originals, and I spent easily two hours um, sitting on the couch in, his, in part of his studio just, you know, drinking that stuff up. And it was gorgeous. It was some of the best work of Al's career. And, uh, but he was sad about it. You know, because, uh, and, and Al did not often drop the F-bomb. <laughs> and um, he came over and he was kind of pensive. And he said, so what do you think? Because I hadn't said anything for like an hour. I was just like, you know, drunk from <laughs> the exposure to the, the work. And I said, Al, this is, this is gorgeous. And he goes, and no one gives a fuck. And um, from Al, that was unusual. Because Al was, by nature, a very optimistic, upbeat guy. And uh, the syndicates were on the decline at that time. And, the, and, and that impacted my generation, Robin. That's why I'm telling you this whole story, because we saw the crumbling of the aristocracy. <laughs> you know, we saw that, that what had been uh, a higher uh, class of cartooning, a better paying uh, gig, uh, the cartoonists had far more uh, proprietary rights and, and greater grub stakes in their work. Uh, that was already on the decline as as we were graduating from the Kubert School, um, and we also heard a lot of stories that I've never read in books. You know, Joe Joe didn't talk about Tales of the Green Beret. Um, I was curious about it because I I'd grown up in a military family. I still have the record album. You know, <laughs> that the, the that song that was a top forty hit in the in the mid sixties, uh, the Ballad of the Green Beret, and I had read Joe's. Uh, Green Beret comic strip that he did with, um, I think it was Robin Moore was the author, I think, of that. Um, but Joe wouldn't talk about it. And, and that kind of uh, that kind of nibbled away at me because I couldn't sort out in my head, well, okay, so if you're a comic book artist, you look up to the comic strip guys as being you know, the aristocracy. Joe got that shot. Joe got to do a nationally syndicated comic strip. Why isn't he talking about it? And why isn't he comfortable talking about it? And his wife, Muriel, um, explained to me once that they had been invited to a uh, comics convention in South America, Central America or South America. I think it was in South America. Um, and it was when Joe was doing Tales of the Green Beret. And he went out on stage for the panel, or, or one of the panels he was invited to be at, and they announced Joe Kubert, Tales of the Green Beret, and he got booed. He was jeered by the crowd. Well, in South America, you know, A, North American pol policies are not very popular in Central and South America because we have been messing with those countries and cultures for as long as there's been a, a CIA. Um, and B, Vietnam was reviled in the rest of the world what we were doing in vietnam as a, as a country as a culture was, was reviled in the rest of the world and joe was really caught off guard by that that he was suddenly the embodiment of a uh, an american military and political uh, culture that uh, that would get him booed on stage and there he is the special guest <laughs> um Maybe that's, you know, Muriel was telling me that story in part to explain to me why Joe was not going to talk to me about that strip. Because she yeah. could see I was asking him, and I wasn't trying to be a pest about it, but I asked him more than once. And Muriel's office was right there on the main floor where our classrooms were. And Muriel was wonderful. I mean, she was really important to all of us in, in ways we can talk about if you want to. But she would overhear when we were asking something, and she would pull us aside sometimes and let us in on the, the behind the curtain of how the comics industry worked. And, um, you know, Muriel was the one that, that when I brought in this French album of enemy ace stories and I was going to ask Joe to sign it and Muriel went, Steve, don't ask him. He doesn't get a penny for those reprints. And that's when we found out, Oh, 
You know, <laughs> Joe Kubert doesn't get paid when his work is reprinted. <laughs> um, and Muriel wanted us to know it. It wasn't that she was talking, you know, behind Joe's back. She wanted us to know how the field worked, and she wanted us to know what we were facing going out there. And to her, that was part of the education we were there to get. And well, God bless her. There's something of a tradition there of uh, the wives of cartoonists being a little more blunt and realist about what's happening. Like, Roz Kirby was very yeah. vocal. Um, I think, was it Dick Ayers, who, yeah. when he was ill, was talking about how Marvel never actually came to visit him in the yep. hospital, but his security guard co-workers came to visit and, yep. uh, you know... Yep. And, and you know, but that see that also carries over into the current generation in in a lot of ways too, Robin. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, let's let's be honest. Um, and I've experienced this in my life as well. We look at the generation of self-publishers that um, rose to prominence in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and and have um, had their day or have or continue to have their day. Mm -hmm. And I look at um, people I know and love. I, I, I can't say we're close friends because I rarely get to see them. Um, I've only gotten to spend time with them for very short windows of opportunity. But uh, Jeff and Vijaya Smith, the Jeff Smith of Bone, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jeff got to finish Bone because Vijaya <laughs> took care of business. And the wives for a lot of cartoonists are their... Um, shield from their world, from the outside world. They are their interpreters for the outside world. They handle the business affairs a great deal. Um, and if you start looking hard at the careers of individual cartoonists, their the nature of their personal relationships and who their partners were or weren't uh, often play huge roles in uh, things that happen in their careers. And for for creators like Joe Kubert. Jack Kirby, um, uh, Jeff Smith, um, they're able to do the amount of work they do and did in part because um, their wives <laughs> saw to the day-to-day -day of dealing with the real world so that they could spend, you know, 8 to 12 hours a day at the drawing board just doing the creative work. Um, you look at the lives of other creators, um, people who were doing it alone, it's very different. Very, very different. Well, and I and I would even argue partners like Gerhardt become important because Dave Sim could not have created the Cerebus that we all call Cerebus without Gerhardt being his creative partner for as long as Gerhardt was. I think Well, it, and even predating that um, with uh, Denny... I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I was I was going to go to that, but <laughs> one of the speed bumps became when Denny and Dave separated, and and I'm privy to to um, some stuff that Dave told me over the years uh, about that process that um, really opened my eyes to the nature of partnerships and the necessity of partnerships to successful um, creators having successful careers, and. Uh, you know, Dave's Dave's career. It, 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 since we're talking about it in this in this this framework, you know, Dave's career would need to be looked at not just as Dave Sim autonomous self creator, but three chapters. You know, yeah. Dave Dave and Denny, Dave and Gerhardt, Dave after Gerhardt. And I think and, there's a fourth chapter now. Well, the, the fourth chapter is Dave without Gerhardt because he's really had to reorient everything about he sees the world. And Dave and I have been in touch with, with one another over, over fairly recently. I got a letter from Dave about three weeks ago. And, you know, he's at IDW now. And yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, you have that period that Gerhardt's gone, and now you have Dave working with the publisher. Yeah, I just see is... that as, you know, the the culmination of that third chapter. Yeah. I mean, okay. Dave, the, when Gerhardt left... Um, and, and Garrett left for reasons that um, I don't think I'm talking out of class. I mean, once Cerebus was over, Garrett had no interest in being the office worker, but that's what there was left to do. Um, and uh, and that had a lot to do with him moving on. And there was the impact on Dave when uh, Gerhardt decided he wanted to be bought out. He doesn't want to be a co-owner 
of that body of work, and that suddenly imposed um, a financial uh, condition on Dave's life that, much as he may have prepared for it, no one can really prepare for it. And that led to the relationship now with IDW, and we'll see where that chapter goes. I, I see that as the beginning of a new fourth chapter, but it exists only because of what happened at, after uh, after Dave and, and Gare parted ways. Um, you know, we could we could mine this territory all day, Robin. But 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 really, I mean, you know, there would be no Jack Kirby who had the the ability to sit in a basement studio and grind out the amount of work Jack did without a Ross Kirby mm-hmm. taking care of day to day and raising kids and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Joe, you know, Dynamo that he is, uh, Muriel was his partner in life, in love, in his work, in the school. Um, Jeff would not have had the success he had with Bone. Would he have even been able to finish Bone uh, without um, everything Vijaya uh, brought to the table and everything Vijaya did for Jeff, for Bone? Um, You know, if I had to name top three business people in comics right now today, two of them are people most people probably wouldn't think of, and one of them is Vijaya Smith. I mean, my God, when I saw Bone in color in Disney Adventures without their having to give up copyright, yeah. holy shit, I would want... <laughs> I, you know, Vijaya Smith, if she opened an agency, I would be the first person knocking at her door saying, could you be my agent? Because holy shit, what an accomplishment that was. Yeah. Um, Neil Gaiman, you know, Neil is a dear friend of mine. We rarely get to see each other because we live worlds apart in, in, in geographically and in terms of class and, and income and everything. <laughs> but he is a genius diplomat in all his negotiations. He takes care of his business partners. He takes care of his publishers. When there's problems, we don't read about it in the press unless things have completely devolved, like the way they did with Todd McFarlane. Um and he takes care of his creative partners. Um, when uh, you know, when when uh, Stardust was made into a movie, and Neil made sure that Charles Vess was equal partner in terms of income, in terms of credit, in terms of everything, that is an un- almost unprecedented event in the history of creator rights. That because Neil had written a novel, yeah, and a typical writer would have just taken out everything and neil made sure charlie got his share and you know we'd be looking at a very different world today if all creative partnerships were as caring and attentive uh, as that one <laughs> um but these are things people don't think about when they're thinking about you know how comics and how the industry works and and um and how individual creators function Distant cousins, there's a limited supply, and we're down to the dozens, and this is why. Big eyed beans from Venus, oh my, oh my. Boys and girls, earth people around the circle, mixtures of man alike. Big eyed beans from Venus, don't let anything get in between us. Beam in on me, baby, and we'll beam together. I know we've always been together, but there's more. Mr. Zuthorn Rollo, hit that long lunar note and let it flow. Your wallets flop out and women open your purses. Cause a man or a woman without a big eyed bean from Venus is suffering with the waste that's a case. Yeah, you're suffering with the waste that's a Go out and 
to that interview with Steve Bissett on inkstuds.org. Um, it's a pretty epic, lengthy, nearly three hours conversation, which is far more than my sturdy one hour here on CITR. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next week.